take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Valuing the Valuable. And it'll go along with uh, what we're doing tonight uh, and during this six-week period in the Follow Me series by David Platt. Uh, by the way, I tried to be a, a blessing to Larry a while ago when he came off the platform. I said, I'll, I'll be, your, be a blessing to you today. And I held out my hand. He didn't, you know, he didn't seem too interested in being blessed today. But uh, anyway, while you're finding Matthew chapter 13, if you would also find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Valuing the valuable. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that in you is life. And we thank you that you allow yourself to be discovered and you allow yourself to be known. Otherwise, there would be no hope for any of us. Lord, help us to understand today that nothing in this world compares to you. God, we know that the world rejects your glory and tries to hide your truth. But God, we pray today that you would open our eyes and open our ears. And Lord, may we overcome any hindrance that might be in our lives to following you. May these parables prompt us to evaluate our lives, to examine our lives. God, I pray that you might be pleased as the word is preached, the way you did with Lydia in Acts 16, that you might open somebody's heart to believe. That they would discover in Jesus Christ today that he is that treasure that they must have. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. At the turn of the 18th century, Charles IV, King of Spain, knew that Napoleon could not be stopped in his march across Europe. It was clear that Napoleon would claim the Spanish crown by force, And with it, he would obtain all of the Spanish crown's riches and treasures. 
And so Charles asked his most trusted advisor to hide the the great treasures of the Spanish monarchy. Well, this wise and trusted advisor buried a, a priceless collection of antique clocks into one of the walls of the 365 room mansion. And then he hid the Spanish crown jewels in another one of the walls in yet a separate room. Well, to ensure that the jewels could be uncovered later, the advisor cut off a very small piece of fabric from the draperies of the rooms in which the treasures were buried. Well, sure enough, Napoleon in time took over Spain and established his brother Joseph on the throne. But in 1814, Joseph's rule was cut off when Ferdinand VII, the son of Charles, mustered enough uh, strength and support to reclaim the crown. Ferdinand returned to the palace knowing the secret of the crown jewels and the antique clocks. Determined to find them, he brought the pieces of cloth which had been secretly held by his father's advisor. But unfortunately, he discovered that Joseph Napoleon had been somewhat of an interior decorator. All of the paper, all of the paints, all of the draperies and furnishings in the rooms had been changed out. And so Ferdinand was faced with the choice of breaking down walls in each of the 365 rooms or simply letting the treasure lie buried until one day they would be discovered. He chose to do that. Now almost everybody thought that that was just simply an old European legend until just a few decades ago. A plumber was working on the pipes in one of the rooms of the old Spanish mansion. Breaking through the wall, he unexpectedly stumbled into a large collection of antique clocks. The discovery was announced all through Spain, and it was a great national discovery that was celebrated. Now, someday, somebody, perhaps will open up another one of those walls in just the right room and find all of the crown jewels of the old Spanish monarchy. Hidden treasure. Folks, there's just something fascinating about hidden treasure, isn't there? I can remember as a kid, and no doubt you can too, some of the books that you would read as a child probably had to do with discovering buried treasure. Well, in our parables today, Jesus is talking about treasure, but treasure of a different kind, treasure of a more significant kind. He says here, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Again, it is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Now in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has been telling a series of parables about the kingdom of God. If you're familiar with this chapter, you know what some of these parables are. He began talking uh, just right before these parables about the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
And he told the story about a man who went out and he sowed his fields in wheat. But as he went to bed and slept, another one came along and sowed tares among the wheat. And when the crop began to grow up, everybody could see there were tares mixed in with the wheat. And he told the disciples the meaning of that parable. He said, the one who sowed the wheat in his, in his fields is God. Sowing sons of the kingdom, but the evil one came and, and sowed among the wheat tares. And the tares have grown up with the wheat. Well, the people in that parable said, Lord, do you want us to go and pull up the tears? And he said, no, because in pulling up the tears, you may accidentally pull up some of the wheat. Just wait until the end of the age and the angels will make the separation. And then he went on to tell a parable about the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. He said, yet when it is planted, it grows up into this big plant which provides seed for all. And then he said, the kingdom of God is like leaven that is sown. And we know what leaven does. Leaven permeates the whole batch of dough. And so that parable of the mustard seed and the leaven is talking about how small beginnings end up having huge results. Well, after telling those parables, Jesus comes to these parables about the treasures. About the treasure, the pearl, and then the dragnet. And you'll see that these parables emphasize the worth of the kingdom of God. The unsurpassed worth of the kingdom of God. Folks, what could be more valuable than discovering Jesus, than, than having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there anything in this world that can compare to that? Certainly not. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. He said, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Surely nothing in life can be as great as knowing Christ. Listen to what else Paul said about that. In Philippians 3 he said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Nothing is as valuable as knowing Jesus Christ. Now, as Craig Blomberg says in his book, The Preaching the Parables, these three parables point out that true disciples are those who recognize that God's kingdom is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing whatever it takes 
to be citizens of the kingdom of God. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is finding finding the treasure of a lifetime. Finding the true treasure of a lifetime. Read with me again verse 44. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Folks, if we only live for ourselves, if we only live for this world and the things of this world, the Bible calls us fools. It is a foolish thing simply to live for this world. Because we were made for better things. We were made for a relationship with God. Jesus points out in our parables today that true treasure has to do with the kingdom of God. And knowing that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, what is he talking about? Well, there's a number of things we could put under that category. No doubt he's talking about what it means to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. What it means to be justified by the blood of Christ. And all of your sins are washed away and you have peace with God and and you have forgiveness and you've been reconciled to the God of the universe. And along with being reconciled with the God of the universe, He dwells with us through the power of His Spirit and He gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace. All of these things pertain to the kingdom of God. What could be more valuable than being a citizen of the kingdom of God? These are the things that make up the real treasure in life. What is it that people want to know? People want to know that their life has meaning and purpose. They want to know that if there is a God, they can know Him and they can be at peace with God. People want to know that all of their sins, regardless of whatever they've done in their lives, that all of their sins can be washed away and that they have eternal life. That's what people want to know. Now notice what verse 44 tells us. The kingdom of God is like a treasure. It is like a treasure hidden in a field. And what is it that we notice first about this treasure? Well, we notice that this treasure is not on first glance visible. It's hidden. It's hidden in the ground. Now to anybody listening to Jesus speak in that day, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. You see, Israel was kind of like a land bridge between all the major superpowers of that day. To the east you had Babylon. To the northeast you had Syria. And then you also had Assyria. You had those three major world powers in ancient times. And then to the southwest of Israel, you had Egypt. 
And a lot of times the kingdoms east of Israel and Egypt to the southwest, they were in constant conflict with one another for who was going to be in control of the world. And all of the major roads passed through Israel. And so if you could control the major highways going through Israel, you could control a lot of what went on in ancient times. And so it was nothing in ancient times for a man in Israel for his field or his backyard to immediately be turned into a big battle zone. And here would be all of, these, all of these troops that would come in. And as they would come in, they would plunder the land. And as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6, if you put all of your wealth into your home, the homes had, brick, uh, had mud brick walls that you could dig through. And so if all of your treasure was in your house, somebody could literally dig through the wall of your house, go in and steal you blind, take everything that you own. And so what would people in Israel commonly do? They would go out in their field somewhere and they would pick a special location and, and they, would, they would dig a hole and bury their treasure there and somehow or another mark it so that they would know years later where that treasure was. That was commonplace. The rabbis had a saying that the only safe place to bury your riches was in the ground. You'll recall another one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the talents. The guy who got five talents, then the guy who got two, and then the guy who got one. What did the guy with the one talent do? He went and hid his master's money, where? In the ground. So again, that was just commonplace. Very common. And as Jesus is talking about this treasure hidden in the ground, this would have been so true to life. This would have been their common everyday experience, what they did with their money. Now let's suppose the owner of the treasure dies. Let's suppose his family doesn't know where his treasure's hidden. It may lay there covered up for years. It may never be discovered. We're probably meant to think this guy in the story is probably nothing more than a hired hand. He's a plowboy and he's out working in his master's field and all of a sudden his plow, the blade of his plow, hits something and he stops because it feels a little different than the average rock that you're hitting. And, and he stops and he uncovers the ground there and he finds a buried treasure. And he goes and sells everything that he has so he can buy that field. Again, think of the uh, pearl merchant. He's searching for that which is not immediately obvious or everybody would have one. Everybody that could afford it. Pearls were a special fascination in the ancient world. It seems to have begun with the Egyptians. And then the Arabs and the Romans developed a love for pearls. In fact, before the Arabs ever had oil, they loved their pearls. It said that Cleopatra had two pearls worth $4 million. Now ladies, that would make quite a necklace, wouldn't it? 
Now, in Jesus' day, pearl merchants would journey out on expeditions that took them all over the world. And so, whether it was treasure hidden in a field or a pearl, notice here, it is treasure that in some way is hidden. It's not visible to the naked eye at first. And both of these treasures were waiting to be found. Jesus likens that to spiritual things. He likens that to the kingdom of God. As we go about in life, living in this world, the things of God may not be easily seen. Why is that so? Well, because the average person isn't even looking for God, isn't even looking for the things of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that the average man or woman is is totally blind to the things of God. Romans 1 tells us that God has spoken in creation, natural revelation. And God has given enough in natural revelation that we should know that there's a God. Now, natural revelation doesn't tell us enough to know about salvation, but nonetheless, natural revelation tells us enough that we ought to know just through common sense as we look at the created order, we ought to know that behind all of this design, there's an intelligent designer. The psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God. But what do men do to keep all of this suppressed, all of this hidden? Turn with me a moment over to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 we find the answer. We find the answer why the things of God are hidden and people don't immediately see them. Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do we do? You can't erase truth. You can't undo it. Especially God's truth. It's there. You and I can't do anything about it being there. But what do lost men do? They try to push God's truth under the carpet. They try to deny it. They try to suppress it. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. From natural revelation alone, men are without excuse. For although although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Three times Paul says God gave them up. God gave them up. They suppressed the truth of God. They didn't want anything to do with it. So what does God do? He gives them over. He gives them up to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25 says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we see there in in Romans 1, God has made His treasures known. He's made His truth known that we ought to be able to see. But what do men do? Men suppress that truth. I tell you what, a very applicable illustration of what Paul is talking about here in Romans 1 is what we've been facing in the nation in the past couple of years. God's word, God's truth has very clearly spoken about marriage. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and find God's instructions on marriage that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. But we have men and women today rejecting God's word and accepting same-sex behavior, and encouraging other people in it. Well, that's a sign, according to Romans 1, that you're dealing with somebody who suppressed God's truth, and so God has given them over to a debased mind. God has given them over to their own passions and thoughts. And he says here in Romans 1, they're already under the wrath of God. Paul says they don't know God. I don't care if it's a preacher or a politician or a president. When somebody comes out in favor of such behavior, the scripture says, they don't know God and they're already under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not eschatological out there in the future at the end of time. The wrath of God is poured out even now, evidenced by the fact that people want to go their own way and do their own thing. And we're seeing that today. What we're seeing is people are already on the sliding board going down to their ultimate judgment. Can they change? No, not of their own accord. They've already rejected the truth of God. They're in the process of going down that greased sliding board. God's given them over. They won't change unless God turns them around. Unless God intervenes. In somebody's life. But again that's an example of why so much of God. So much of spiritual things are hidden from from our eyes today. We don't see because we don't want to see. We've suppressed the truth of God. And so instead what do people do? They start living for themselves. They start living for the things of this world, the treasures of this world. They make idols out of themselves and idols out of things that they own. And they seek after the approval and the recognition and the wealth and a sense of importance. Why? Because Satan doesn't want you knowing the true treasure of life. Satan has blinded people. 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says... But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now folks, the Bible points out that not only some men, but the Bible points out that most men live this way. They're blind. Jesus in Matthew 13 said, And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. hear, And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. Again, the Bible says most are in that boat. They willfully close their eyes to God's truth. Now, they may come to church week in and week out, but they're never transformed because they don't have eyes for the kingdom of God. They don't search for God or the things of God. But hallelujah, aren't you glad that God has a way of getting people's attention before it's too late? And what Jesus is pointing out here, he gets, he gets some people's attention quite suddenly and by surprise. Here's this guy going out and plowing in a field. When he left home that morning, did he have any idea what he was going to discover that day? No, it hit him suddenly. You know who I think of? I think of Charles Spurgeon, greatest greatest preacher of the Baptist-speaking world. When, when, when Charles Spurgeon was 15 years of age, God had been working on his heart. And so he got up one New Year's morning, and, and there was snow covering London, but, but God was working on his heart. And so as a 15-year-old boy, he wanted to find a church to go to that morning to hear about God. Well, everywhere was closed. He turned down a back alley and he, he found an old primitive Methodist church that was open. And he went inside. And when he went inside that church, not many people were there. Very few. They didn't venture out in the bad weather in the snow that morning. The preacher wasn't even there. And there was a layman who got up to preach. And Spurgeon said later, he did a pathetic job. I mean, he said it was really, really bad. The guy got up and his text was out of the book of Isaiah where God says, Look ye to the Lord, all ye ends of the earth. Look to the Lord and be ye saved. And Spurgeon said it was clear the guy didn't have anything prepared to say because he just started repeating that over and over and over and over again. Look ye to the Lord, look ye to the Lord, look, 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 look ye to the Lord, look ye to the Lord, all ye at the ends of the earth, and be 
saved. Look, look. He just said that over and over again. And he looked out at Spurgeon and he said, Young man, look, I perceive you to be very miserable among men. Look ye to the Lord and be ye saved. And Spurgeon said in that moment a light bulb came on and I did look, I did look to the Lord and I was gloriously saved. You know who else I think of just hitting him suddenly? I think of the Apostle Paul. Think of the Apostle Paul as Rabbi Saul and he's going up that road to Damascus. Where is he headed? He's headed up there so he can find out who the Christians are who are meeting in worship. And he is going to, he is going to bring them back bound in chains. And, and they're going to be put on trial in Jerusalem. And some of them put in prison and some of them put to death. He's going there on that kind of a mission. He had letters from the high priest that he could arrest Christians. And Paul says in the book of Acts that while he was going along with that hatred in his heart towards Christians, all of a sudden the Lord showed up and was brighter than the noonday sun. And Saul fell to the earth and said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, Saul, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Go into the city and it shall be told you what you shall do. Saul was converted, became the Apostle Paul, became the Apostle to the Gentiles again as he was setting out for Damascus that day. He had no idea the treasure that he was about to discover. It was all a surprise. You know how how others are? Others are like the pearl merchant. They're seeking, they're looking. That might be you today. God says in Jeremiah 29, 13, They shall seek for me and find me when they search for me with all of their heart. You know who I think of here in the Bible? I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. He had come to Jerusalem all the way from Ethiopia. He'd ridden in his chariot. He was an important official in the Ethiopian court. But he was looking for God. And so he went up to Jerusalem. He was a God-fearing Gentile. Maybe he went up to Jerusalem. Perhaps it it was the, the, the Passover festival, for instance. And while he was there in Jerusalem wanting to know more about the true and the living God of Israel, the Bible says that he obtained a copy of the, uh, uh, the scroll of, of Isaiah. And as he's heading back to Ethiopia, he's reading where else but in Isaiah 53. What a perfect place. Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah. That all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Philip was told to go and join himself to the Ethiopian's chariot. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, no, I don't. Is the prophet speaking of himself or somebody else? And the Bible says that Philip, beginning with that text, preached Jesus to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch became a believer that day. It was the end of his long search. 
Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, said that he wandered in his life from philosophy to philosophy looking for something that could satisfy his empty heart. And as he looked, he finally stumbled upon Jesus and his life was changed. Again, maybe that's you today. You've been searching for God. You're hungry to know Him. And you know why that's going on like that in your life? It's because God is at work in your life. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. When you're searching for God, you know what you discover? You discover that God is already searching for you. When little Zacchaeus was up in that tree looking to see Jesus, Jesus passed by and he was looking for Zacchaeus. Some people find him almost accidentally it seems. Some people find him after a long search. But you know what those who find him discover, as Paul says, that in him are hidden all of the treasures of God. Well, secondly, I want you to see not only finding the true treasure of a lifetime, but I want you to look with me at possessing the true treasure of a lifetime. I want you to notice something here in in these verses. It was not enough for these men simply to find this treasure. But on finding this treasure and on finding this pearl, what did they have to do? Each of these men knew that they had to do whatever it took. So they could possess this treasure. Finding it wasn't enough. They knew that it had to be theirs. And so what's the plow boy do? The plow boy, he goes and he runs home and he gathers everything together that he owns and he sells it all so he can pull together enough assets to go and buy that field so he can have that treasure. You say, Pastor, wasn't that unethical? Shouldn't he have told the master of that field that that treasure was theirs? Well, in the culture of that day, it was absolutely not unethical. Whereas today, we might say possession is nine-tenths of the law. Back then, as Craig Blumberg points out, Possession was ten-tenths of the law. Nothing unethical about it. But on top of that, I want you to remember something. Jesus is telling a parable here. It's a parable. A parable is a simile, a metaphor, uh, uh, an illustration or analogy. In the hermeneutics of parables, we're not supposed to make a big deal out of every single detail We're not supposed to do like the church fathers and allegorize the parables making every detail say something. In the hermeneutics of parables you're to find what the main point of the parable is and you have to let some of the details fall by the wayside. But he goes and he does whatever he has to do so he can possess this treasure. Likewise the pearl merchant. 
He gives up everything that he owns so he can buy this pearl of great price. Both men decide to take a bold step. It was costly. The treasure could only be had one way. Sell all that you have. Now folks, what's Jesus talking about? Is he talking about a work salvation? Absolutely not. He's making an analogy. The point's clear. The kingdom of God is worth giving up everything for. You've got to surrender all that you are and all that you have. And you have to change and repent and come to the Lord with the humility of a child letting go of all of your pride. You say, Pastor, that's hard. That's a high price to pay. Yes, it is. But I want you to notice something. The possession was worth any cost. The Bible says out of joy they went and sold all that they had so they could obtain this treasure. It doesn't say their arm had to be twisted. It doesn't say they had to be convinced or persuaded. It says out of joy they went out and they gave up everything else so that they could have this one treasure. Didn't even seem like a sacrifice. It was more important than everything. Folks, I want you to think a moment about so much of our Christianity today. Do we have that kind of heart? Boy, I'll give up everything. I'll do anything. No. What what do we tend to do today? Well, if it doesn't cost me too much... If it doesn't inconvenience me, if it doesn't take me away from anything that I want to do with my life, if I don't have to give up anything, you know what, I might just tack Jesus on, make him kind of a little footnote to my life or a postlude. That's not biblical Christianity. These guys gave up everything and did not even consider it a burden to do so. You know, I remember when I came to the Lord. <clears throat> I consider my conversion and call to the ministry to be, be events that were close together when I was 19. Oh, sure, I'd, I'd walked an aisle and said a prayer and been baptized and joined the church when I was 13. But you know what? My life was never changed. My life was never changed. I still remember being on the campus of UNCC that day. For a year and a half, for a year and a half, I had, I had been seeking. Now, I, I was kind of like the merchant, but, but it's also, as you'll see in a minute, kind of like the plowboy, too. It happened in an instant. I've been seeking and looking for a, for a year and a half. God, are you there? God, what do you want me to do? God, uh, is there a plan for my life? What do you want me to do? Got to school late that day and decided not to go into class. God was really speaking to me that day. And after searching for a year and a half, I surrendered everything over to the Lord. I tell you what, God flooded me with the peace like I'd never had before in my life. And God spoke to me that day like God had never spoken to me before. And by the way, God has never spoken to me since like that. God got a hold of me. 
and did His work in my life. And I was different. I was changed. I was a new creation in Christ. Now, I had no idea that morning I'd been seeking for a year and a half, but that morning on my way to UNCC, I had no idea what was about to happen to me that day. So again, I was kind of like the plow boy and the pearl merchant. And I remember when God called me to preach. And I went home that week and I told my parents what I had what I had experienced that, that day in, in the privacy of my automobile sitting out in a parking lot, a commuter parking lot out at UNCC. And I went home and I told my parents that God had saved me and, and called me into the ministry. And my dad was absolutely furious. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. I said, yes, I am, Dad. God's called me. You're not going to do that. Yes, I am. God's called me to this. When he couldn't get me out of it, he decided to go talk to our preacher. And he said, I don't care what you got to do. You need to talk him out of this. And our preacher showed the wisdom of Gamaliel in the book of Acts. He said, Mr. Davis... If this is not of the Lord, don't worry about it. It won't last. But if it is of the Lord, you'll be found fighting against God. My dad came back and said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not paying for it. You're You're on your own. You're on your own. So there me and my mom sat in the financial aid office at Wingate so I could begin my preparation for the ministry. And I couldn't get any scholarships because as that financial aid office told us that your, your, your dad makes too much money. No scholarships available. And my mom said, but, but none of it's going to be available for Scott. They said, it doesn't matter. Too much money in the household. Well, you know what I had to do? Had to do what a lot of people have to do today. Take out loans. Pay for a college education that way. But you know what? Isn't it amazing how God works? As I was getting ready to go on to seminary, the chairman of our department came to me, Dr. Burns Coleman. He said, you're going on to seminary, right? And I said, yeah. He said, Southwestern's got this thing now they're offering to colleges and universities. It's called the, the, the President Scholarship. It goes to the student with the highest GPA that's going on to seminary. And he said, I'm recommending you for it. It's yours. And I'm like, great. Well, graduating from college, we figured my cumulative. Guess what? When that year of playing at UNCC was factored in, it knocked me out of contention for the President's Scholarship. It's testimony there, students. Don't play, don't, play in your fresh, don't play in your freshman year. It'll come back to bite you. Didn't get the President's Scholarship. But you know what? Serving Parkwood Baptist over in Gastonia. I was getting ready to go off to seminary. And they asked me to step out one day. Step out of a business meeting. And afterwards the minister of music came out and he said congratulations. I said congratulations on what? He said we're sending you to Southwestern with the check. 
Do you know that it was the exact dollar amount down to the very penny of what I lost in the president's scholarship? Don't tell me God doesn't work. And around that time too, or a little later, Connie and I had been dating. We'd broke up. We were about to get together again. But some of her friends, now keep in mind, these were church girls. Church girls. But some of her friends said, Connie, you better run the other way from him. She said, why? They said, because Scott's serious about the ministry. You marry him and you might end up 10,000 miles away eating worms for supper. She didn't run, and we've not eaten worms yet, have we? Well, folks, look at what these verses are saying. Both men in the parable, what did they do? They did whatever it took. They didn't let anything stop them. The plowboy saw the value of the treasure. The pearl merchant saw the, the value of the pearl. And they gave up anything. They did whatever they had to do. They made whatever sacrifice. Again, they didn't even consider it a sacrifice. They had to have the treasure. Jesus point in the two parables. Don't miss the true treasure. Don't miss out on knowing God. Don't miss out on following Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Remember in life, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is not always apparent because the things of this world can can blind us to the true treasure and the busyness of life can blind us. But when we finally see and understand, we need to do anything in our power and ability to lay a hold of Jesus. Whether it's by accident, it seems, or at the end of a long search, lay a hold of Jesus. He is the treasure. But folks, just like with the treasure and the pearl, a transaction's got to occur. You've got to turn to Jesus. You've got to surrender your life. You can know Him intellectually, you can know Him in your heart, you can know Him in your volitional will. As James Montgomery Boyce talks about, it takes all three, you can't stop short. Boyce writes, you know Him intellectually, you believe He is who the Bible says He is. You know Him in your heart, you sense Him tugging on your heartstrings, and then you have to know Him as an act of your will, forsaking everything as an act of your will, you surrender to Him. But don't let one more day go by. Isaiah 55 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which will not satisfy? So many people just keep wasting their lives away on things that won't satisfy. Come to Jesus. Now in closing, I want to direct your attention to the parable of the dragnet. I just want to quickly make a point that Blomberg and Boyce both make because we don't have time to deal with this. But Blomberg writes, and listen to this, this is powerful. One of the reasons that we don't sense the urgency to serve Christ sacrificially is because we don't really believe in hell as a danger. 
He says various polls in recent decades consistently agree. About 84% of all Americans believe in some kind of life after death. And 82% believe in heaven. But only 69% believe in any kind of hell and a continuing conscience existence of punishment for the righteous. And he goes on to say, listen to this, and almost nobody believes that he or she is personally going to go to hell. But as Boyce points out, Jesus is saying, yeah, it's real and there will be a final separation. It is thorough, it is determined, it is permanent, and the end of the wicked will be dreadful. If you could ask somebody in hell today about the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, I believe with all of my heart they would say, do whatever you've got to do to lay a hold of that treasure and do it now. Value the valuable. Don't miss the treasure. Don't miss Jesus. Because in Him are hidden all of the treasures of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This morning, are you somewhere in the search for the pearl of great price? I hope you'll see and understand that you need look no further than to Jesus. Perhaps this morning the realization of Christ being what you need has, has come upon you rather surprisingly. Come to Him. Again, as Boyce writes, do not listen to the devil's lies. He cares nothing for you. He is a condemned and evil being who, knowing that he must perish, takes his sole delight in drawing others after him to a common doom. Instead, listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks truth. He speaks so that you may know that judgment is real, separation is coming, and the time for repentance is now. Hear him. Believe him. Look to him. Turn from anything that would keep you from Jesus and throw yourself upon him and his work only. And no doubt if Christ is speaking to your heart, it doesn't matter what the hindrance or the barrier is. You need to sacrifice everything to come to him. Remember, in the end, in the final analysis, it's not really a sacrifice. You know, perhaps since coming to him years ago, for some of you, maybe new hindrances have arisen. And you too need to count the cost. Nothing is as valuable as Jesus Christ. Boyce writes, do not think that having renounced everything for Jesus, you will one day find yourself disappointed at what will have proved to be a bad bargain. You will not find yourself coming back with all your treasure or pearl, hoping to get your property back. It is never that way. In the exchange described by these parables, the men who made their purchases received a bargain. They made the deal of their lives. Value the valuable. If you don't know Christ, is He speaking to you today? Don't let anything stand in the way. If you know Him and your focus has been dimmed of recent years, you've begun to put your eyes more on the things of the world. Deal with that. 
Remember, He's the greatest treasure of all. Don't waste your money and time on that which will not ultimately satisfy. 